How should the ultimate ruler of the universe be addressed? Jesus answers this question better than anyone, and let's join our study leader, Dave Wordson, as he focuses our attention on the power in a name and proceeds to talk to us about what Jesus taught about addressing God in prayer. What is there in a name? The mention of a name. There is power in a name. Names are descriptive and come as a kind of intimately related to the character, whether it be a name that's ignominious or whether it's a name that is filled with honor and prestige. Probably no other name has been more cursed and yet on the other hand more praised than the name Jehovah or God. Picking up on our theme verse in 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is near. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Why? So that you can pray. And we began learning how to pray. And for the next few weeks, we're going to take a very familiar passage that we began with. Last week, we focused on, tell me, our Father who art in heaven. Everybody together, our Father who art in heaven. And what did we learn? We learned about two dimensions to the fatherhood of God. We learned that the scripture teaches that there's one sense in which God is the father of all mankind. He's the father of all things. And we're using the idea of fatherhood in the sense that he is the creator of all things. But then we looked into the page of the New Testament and we found out that there were those in the New Testament that the Lord would say, the Lord Jesus himself would say, you are of your father, and he would name not God, but you are of your father the devil and you are following the characteristics of your father the devil he was a liar from the beginning and so are you he was a deceiver he was a murderer and so we have this very strong concept there are those that are not of the father in heaven they're of a father that is the evil one satan our adversary and then last week we concluded talking about how we can move from kind of an external religiosity the, the thrust of what we shared and it needs to be the heartbeat of our prayer life. I hope it's flowed into the way that you've related to God this week. We learned that when Jesus said, when we're learning to pray, teach us to pray, and he started out, our Father, he was saying that you and I that have trusted in Christ as our Savior have been born from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of light, and now we look at God not just as our great creator father, but he becomes our personal daddy in heaven. In fact, when it's said that the Spirit of God in Romans 8 teaches us to cry Abba, in the language Abba just means Daddy in English. And it talks about intimacy, a closeness that you can have with God. Now we want to go on with the Lord's Prayer and allow the Lord Jesus to teach us a second principle in the area of praying, a second characteristic of what our prayer should involve. You say, Dave, what should I say? You know, what should happen when I pray? Well, we're beginning with the address. We need to look up. We need to address God on a vertical level. And we begin with our daddy in heaven. And what we need to pray is, hallowed be your name. And now the word hallowed, how many of you use hallowed in everyday speech? Both in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew, it talks about hallowed be your name. How many of you go to school and say, you know, hallowed? It's one of those words that comes right out of the religious jargon. What does it hallowed mean? Well, it means set apart be your name. It means may your name be treated with distinction. Setting a name apart. That's all that hallowed means. When you go into the secular workplace... 
You hear the name of God, not set apart, but you hear it abused. You hear it cursed. You hear it blamed. As we're gathered together in, in this morning, what did we just do? When you sang, Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness, what are you saying? What did you just do? Do you, know, do you know what you just did in song? You prayed. That's what that whole song is. That whole song is a prayer. The, the song we sang before that, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. What is that? It's a prayer. Do you know what just happened as you were singing? Husbands, when you look into your wife's eye and you say, Honey, I want you to know that I love you. There's no one else in all the world that I love like you. What happens in your wife's eyes? And vice versa. When a wife says, honey, I want you to know you're my special one. You're the one that I'm devoted to. I love you. Does that do anything inside of some of you? Some of the teenagers over here already start moving a little bit in anticipation of some of those great days. What makes it happen right here? We gather together. We are a family of the children of God. And you moved the heart of God. You really did. Because God's a very personal being. You moved him when you sang to him. And that's something that we need to really strive to do. You see, we have a tendency. One of the things that Satan's pulling us into is just to have it be words, like we learned last week. We just have religion, and we just say words, and there's none of this personal response. The same thing happens in marriages. The same thing happens in family relationships. We start dealing just on the surface, and there's no heart-to-heart -heart communication. And that's what Jesus is saying, is that prayer, he begins by saying that prayer is really touching base with a personal God, and it begins with setting apart his name in our lives. Now, in order to do that, we need to know what the name is. If you don't know what the name of God is, then it's going to be very hard to treat it with distinction. If we don't know what his name is, then we can hardly set it apart with distinction. So this morning, we want to go on and let the Lord Jesus teach us how to pray by making the name of God very distinct, very honored, very prominent, full of acclaim in our lives. Let's just begin with the very first word, the most general word for the name of God in all the scripture. The word is L, E-L. Not like the Israeli airlines, whatever the L, L was, something like that. This is E-L. And in Hebrew, it's just the name, and you know this name. How many of you have ever heard of Allah? How many of you ever heard of Allah? Okay, that sounds like a strange word, doesn't it to you? In fact, as soon as I mention Allah, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Islam, right? But people bowing down to mosques. Well, all Allah means, Allah in Arabic is Aloha, not, not Hawaiian. Aloha means is the singular form of Elohim. And so what we have is El and Elohim, which are the, the two general words used for God in the Bible. In Arabic, it just comes over as Allah. And it's like our English word, so you can understand it. It's like our English word, God. It's like our English word, God. Now, we just think of all the different ways that we use the English word, God. I can say that the Shivanti Indians worship the gods of the jungle. 
What am I talking about? Am I talking about true gods? Am I talking about the ultimate living God? No. But in English, I'll say they worship the God of the monkey. And I use the word God. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a pagan idol. Well, the, the Hebrew word El can be used like that. And what it's talking about is that this people believes that there is power. There is some kind of supernatural entity that's at work in whatever we put the title God with. For example, the Shavanti Indians would believe that there was a God of the river. And what they would be saying is that, that somehow the river had a power over their lives. It had an influence over their lives. And that was true in the ancient world. And so you have the word God used in that very general sense. Now what happens with the biblical revelation? Well, we begin the Holy Scriptures with, in the beginning, what? In the beginning, you know, that's one verse I'm sure you've memorized. How does it go? In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. And there's our word Elohim. And the reason it's plural is because it's like a, it wants to stress the majesty and the power and the might of God, of this God who's the creator. And what the scripture is saying is that behind all those beliefs that men might have of a supreme being, which is what we use the word G-O-D to cover, what the Bible says is that there is a living God who's always existed that is the all-powerful creator. And the Old Testament, and then the New Testament as well, likes to talk about this great creator God with the word El or Elohim. And what they did is they said that this God, the God of Israel, the creator God, is truly the God of all mankind. Now in order to do that, in order to kind of make their concept of the living God that they believed revealed the scripture to them, they began to put some epithets with it. They began to add some phrase, the God, and then they would add some phrases. We don't look at some of those, but I want you to turn to Numbers first of all, just to stress the distinctiveness of the, the Old Testament idea of God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. That's a little bit harder book to find. Numbers 23, and let's look at verse 19. And here we get a concept of the distinctiveness of God, the setting apart of God in our life. It says in verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Have any of you ever lied in this audience? If you are not holding your hand up right now, you are lying. So get your hand up. That's an incredible distinctive. Do you know that every single human being on planet Earth lies? But the distinctive of the God of heaven, the living God, of the Hebrews and our God today is he does not lie. Look what else it says. Nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Have any of you women ever changed your mind? Now, I want to ask you men. How many of you men have ever changed your mind? You said, ah, see? How many of you men have ever changed your mind? That's another characteristic. We've all lied, right? And we've all changed our mind. You ever stop and think about it? Here's a God who is absolutely dependable. That's the idea. It's not that he can't be entreated. It's not that he can't be implored. It's not that he can't be reached. But what it's saying is that his plan is secure. You can count on him. This set-apart one, this ultimate being in the universe, is someone that tells us the truth. And that's the bedrock of all relationship. 
And he is unchangeable in the sense that he is immutable. You can count on him. He's not flippant. He doesn't change his mind. Look what else it says here. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And what the Hebrews are telling us is, what a verse. You know, that's a, that, that verse, if that's all that we get this morning, that would be a reason to talk things over with him. Because I don't know anybody else that you can talk to that you can say, well, I really want to talk this over with you because you never lie. Man, we wouldn't talk with anybody, but we talk with God. He never lies. And how many people can you talk to when you can say, you don't ever change your mind. If you make a promise to me, it'll happen. Man, what, a, what an unbelievable person to talk to. That's why we're here today. Because there's no one like him in all the universe. He is God and not man. He keeps his promises. He tells the truth. You can count on him. He's going to come through. In order to drive these distinctive ideas of God's power, of his unchangeable, of his total distinction from us in these great categories, not only of power but also of dependability, the scripture uses some designations along with the word El. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard of these. Let me remind you of some of them. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Haloa Adonai. And it sounds like, you know, you say, well, they're speaking in tongues, aren't they? Well, they are. It's the tongue of Hebrew. El Shaddai, El, what have I told you that means? God. What does Shaddai mean? Well, in Hebrew, there's a root that means the mountain, Shad. It also comes over into Akkadian. Uh, there's a root that means, it's very similar, this root that possibly is the, is the etymology of Shaddai. And it has to do with the mountains. Well, why do we go to the mountains? Because there's tremendous stability, we think, in the mountains. When you see granite, like up in the Black Hills, the Black Hills are solid granite. And these granite fingers will reach up towards the heaven. And you stand on top of this granite. There's solidity to it. And there's power and there's might. El Shaddai. That's what El Shaddai means. He said, I'm the stable one. When my mother went home to be with the Lord... I've told this story to some of you in the past. We, we wrote it up in an article. I think they had it in Kindred Spirit. But after mom died, the day after mom died, we had to get all the grandkids out of the house. And a lot of them were wee tots, so we couldn't take them downhill skiing quite yet. And it was safer to keep them on level ground, so we went cross-country skiing. And we took them a mile across to the island. And then when we got to the island, we decided we'd go ahead and cross-country ski all the way back to my dad's house which is about three miles. And we started out this great expanse of lake that was frozen. And the whole the majesty of the Adirondack Range is right up to the north. And I'll never forget, as I started up and the kids had dashed on ahead like kids do, and I was trying to get my brother Don. He had fallen and really hurt himself. I was trying to get him going in the right direction. And so we were kind of by ourselves. And I looked up at those mountains. And it was like that phrase from the Psalms, I look to the mountains from whence cometh my help. I'll never forget, you know, being overwhelmed with, with a solidity, with a faithfulness. And it was like God said, David, your mom's all right. Because I make the mountains. And if you think that's stable and secure and majestic and beautiful, you can count on the fact that the ceremony that you just went through this morning when you when you buried your mom, is not going to be the final story because I'm the mountain. I'm the strong one. And, and I'm the one that offers beauty and strength and majesty. My name is El Shaddai. 
And that's what that Old Testament phrase means. It's not used a great deal, but it's used like in Genesis 17.1. It comes, God comes to Abraham and he'll say, El Shaddai, I am the mighty one, the all-powerful, omnipotent one. What's another name? El Elyon. You probably heard that one. El Elyon. Well, Allah in Hebrew means not, not Allah, but Allah means to go up, means to ascend. And here we have a combination of the one that's ascended to the highest point. El Elyon means like the high, the uppermost, the exalted one. Deuteronomy 26, 19 uses this designation. This is God, and we're not talking just about the God of the Shavanti Indians or the God of the river. We're back in the Old Testament. We're not talking about Marduk. We're talking about the most high God. Isaiah likes to build up on this theme of the distinctiveness of God. And, and the prophet Isaiah, even though they've been taken into captivity in Babylon, and all these idols are being worshipped, just hundreds of idols. And what these idols are is they're wooden idols that have been overlaid with gold. And Isaiah loves to mock those idols out. He says that a craftsman takes it and makes it. And then you coat it with gold, which is something that, you know, that, a, that a metallurgist has to fire. And then you create these beautiful idols and you made them. And then you bow down to this stupid thing. And he talks about how you can put it in a furnace and all melts and the whole thing disintegrates. Just mocks out the idols. Why? Because he's saying, I worship the most high God. El Elyon. The one who's in a class by himself. And Jesus is picking up on that and he's saying, as we pray, as you have talked to God this week, you are setting apart his name because he is the most high God. There are not many gods. There is one, the most high one. He's in a class by himself and no one else even deserves the name God when compared with him. That's what El Elyon means. Another one, El Olam. Olam, that sounds like another very strange word. You might have heard that name. How many of you ever heard of the name? El Olam. Well, Olam just means forever. To last for unto the ages of the ages. So when we say God Olam, we're saying God who lasts forever. Isn't that great? You know, I really need to talk to someone that's going to be around forever. I really do. Because everything that I know changes and passes away. Man alive. Jimmy's back here. Jimmy doesn't look like he used to look. And he looks at me and says, man, alive, Wurtzen, who are you to talk? Man, you're getting gray hair and everything else. You ever notice how all of us are changing? And that's one of the most bummer ideas that I know. It really is. And we can laugh about it, but I see it suck the life out of people. You see, corruptibility mortality. It's one of the heaviest curses of humanity. Things come and things pass away. But we're here today to pray. We're here today to talk to the one who is El Olam. He's the God of forever. And he's the one that you want to talk to. He's the one you want to draw near to because he does an incredible thing. When you draw near to him and he becomes your daddy, then he breathes into your life that characteristic of incorruptibility, of immortality. And that's why you have 1 Corinthians 15. It says, then death will be swallowed up in victory. This mortal will put on immortality. Where are you going to get that from? Only one place. The God, the living God, the God of eternity, the God that lasts forever and ever. 
And that's where you get another phrase like the New Testament would say that, that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the... Tell me, fill it in. What are we saying? He is God Olam. He's the one that was here in the beginning. He's the one that will still be here in the end. That means that he's always present. He's always here. And he's the one that we need to talk to. That's what El Olam means. El Roy. Well, that's an interesting one. Turn to Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. We have an interesting story. In Genesis 16, we have the story of some of the early fathers of the Arab people. Ishmael. In Genesis chapter 16, remember the story of Hagar and Ishmael? Remember Sarah said, Abraham, I want you to go to bed with my servant girl because God's not doing a very good job producing the promised child. We'll help him out a little bit. And so Abraham goes in and sleeps with Hagar. Sarah's servant girl becomes Abraham's concubine and produces Ishmael. Well, finally, when the, when the child of grace is given Isaac, Ishmael and Isaac don't get along. Big brother beats up. And this is a really big brother, many years older than little Isaac. He's really beaten up on his little brother. Sarah gets furious about it, blows her top, said, man, you've got to do something about Ishmael and Hagar. Out of the home they go. Hagar goes out into the desert. And she is without water, without food. She is dying with her child in the desert, with her son. And look what it says. It says in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. The angel of the Lord, look, begin with verse 11. You are now with child, and you will have a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. I'm sorry I confused the story a little bit, because this is when the child is going to be born. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and every, everyone's hand will be against him. Isn't that prophetic? For the sons of Ishmael, and he will live in a hostility toward all of his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that phrase, the God who sees me, is El Roy. So this is early in this story, before Hagar got kicked out of the home for good. This was earlier when the Lord did bring her back and the Lord provided for her and they became a great people. But the phrase I want you to see is that here was this girl that was on the verge of death. She was an outcast she was without a people. She was an illicit wife, you might say. But God sees her need. It's that story of grace. And this is El Roy, the God who sees. You also know from the story of, of Jacob lying down and having the dream at Bethel. It says God revealed himself as the God of Bethel. And what he's saying is not that he's the local deity of that particular place. But he's saying, I'm the God that reveals myself in specific places. That's a very important idea. God enters into history. Liberals, liberal theologians don't believe that God is really the God of Bethel, El Bethel. They don't really believe that. They don't believe that the Almighty God really impinges upon humanity. And so all religion becomes not God reaching us, but us reaching forth towards God. It's a totally different concept. The Bible's revealing that this El, this great, omnipotent, powerful God, is the one that reaches down to get us. That's what he did with Hagar out there when she was thirsty. He saw her and he met her need. That's what he did with Jacob when he ran away from home, when his brother was going to kill him. When he slept that night, God saw him and revealed himself to him. And that's what God did in the person of Jesus Christ as well. He revealed himself, not just in a particular place, but he became a man like us. And that's very much true to the character of God as he's revealed in the Old Testament. So we put it all together. We have El Shaddai. We pray. Set apart be his name. So as you're praying, 
One of the things you can do in your prayer, when you get up early in the morning and you get your cup of coffee and you go in and you begin your day, some of you do it before you go to bed at night, but you can say, God, I want to address you as El Shaddai. And I want to praise you. Before I talk to you about all of my problems, I want to focus on you. You're the great mountain one. You're the great secure one. You're El Shaddai. El Elyon. There's no one else that compared with you. You're the most high God. I want to pray to you as El Roy. You're the God that sees my need. And you have the power to meet my need when you see it. You're the God of El Bethel. You're going to be the one that will reveal, if you've revealed yourself to Jacob, you'll reveal yourself in my life. It'll change your prayers if you start talking to God like that. And if you start beginning like the Lord Jesus is teaching you and me to do, and I have a lot to learn about this whole area of really getting that vertical focus, but I challenge you, in fact, I just, I plead with you, it'll change your life. It really will. It's a tremendous act of faith to begin a day or during a day to talk like this. And it'll revolutionize you. Because this God is really there. He really is there. And what a tremendous change takes place when we start to set apart his name. You see, what a tremendous thing it is. My dad got born again because a believer set apart the name of God. The year before, he was so drunk, they peeled him off the top of a, of a, of a pole, climbing the flagpole. The next year, when they went back to army camp, when somebody cussed, this guy said, hey, that name means a great deal to me. I love that name. And this tremendous contrast between a man that used to curse and now a man that's in love. And that's the contrast. Not putting unbelievers down. I think we need to be very careful not to come across as goody-goody two-shoes and, and pious Joe and a million other things. You know, I'm much better than you. We need to come across with relationship, with real integrity of relationship. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is the compound names of God. El and Elohim are the general descriptions of God. But then we come to the great name. And it's the name that you really need to just cling to. It's really the distinctive name. You see, El is kind of a generic name for God. It's kind of a, a big general ascription. God. Like in English, God. But the name that I want to talk to you about now is the personal name for God. In fact, it will say, blank God. Blank our God, it'll say. In other words, now we're going to give us, the Old Testament's going to give us the personal name. Now, what's the personal name for God? Well, we've made it very impersonal. When I mention Jehovah, that doesn't sound very personal to us. That's a, that sounds even more religious than just about anything you can think of, which is very interesting because the name Jehovah didn't come till about the 11th century. And that's some of the first evidence we have of the, of the idea of Jehovah. You say, where does Jehovah come from? Well, in the Old Testament, the personal name of God is four Hebrew letters. And probably the vocalization would go, and you all know it, Yahweh. Yahweh. That's the personal name for God. And in Hebrew, you see, there's no vowels in Hebrew, just consonants. And so you have a four-letter word. It's not a curse word. It's the personal tender title personal proper name i should say not a title but a proper name of god he is yahweh now what happened is by the first century in fact even by the time of christ 
the Jewish people began to worship God in such a distant way. And they began to look upon the name of God as being so holy and so set apart. You see, that's one of the things the Lord Jesus wrestled with, with the Jewish leaders about. Because they treated God like he was very far away. He was high and lifted up. But they put him so far away that he really had nothing to do with their everyday life. They weren't obedient to him morally. They just went through rituals you can think back over some of your past experience in churches. It's always true of groups of religious people that don't know what it means to be born into God's family. They always start to move into a lot of ritual and a lot of very impersonal jargon because they're not really close to God. And Satan's always playing a very, very mean game. He takes words that should have been very close and very intimate and he changes them and makes them very distant like Jehovah. Now what happened? Well, the Jews got so they would not, they would not, when they were reading through their Old Testament, reading through the Hebrew Bible, whenever they saw the four-letter tetragrammaton, Yahweh, they wouldn't pronounce Yahweh. In fact, when I took Hebrew, and I used to go and read with Dr. Walke, we would be reading through the Bible. Whenever we came to the tetragrammaton, we said this, Adonai. You read it, just... That would just come into your mind. Whenever you saw Yahweh, you read Adonai. Now, why did we do that? Well, Dr. Walkie liked to follow in the good rabbinic tradition of the Masoretes, and he made it follow that tradition. Now, where does Jehovah come from? Well, you, you take the vowels in Hebrew of Adonai, and you add them to the, the consonants of Yahweh, you end up in English, you take the Y, it becomes a J, and guess what you have? Yehovah. Jehovah. And that's where you get that name, Jehovah. So what it is is kind of, a, kind of a transliteration into English, messing around with the vowels a little bit, and you end up with Jehovah. But the name is Yahweh. And in the Old Testament, it's that personal name of God that has so much power among the Israelites. It's a name that we should cherish because it's like the inside family name. In fact, one of the most stirring scenes, let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. God has seen the, the lostness of his people down in Egypt. He sees their slavery. And all of you learned this story when you were little kids in Sunday school. You learned the story of Moses and the burning... Fill it in. Learn the story of Moses and the burning bush, obviously. Well, here's the story. Now, if you look down at verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, now look at the next phrase that God says, and God said, I will be, what? With you. Now if, if we were reading in Hebrew, now let's read a little bit further, I want you to keep in mind in English, I will be with you. Okay? I will be with you. Now let's read a little bit further. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God, there's El, on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go and the Israelites say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I tell them? And here's God's answer. God said to Moses, Here's my name. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am have sent you. 
Now the phrase in Hebrew, I am, is like, it's like a sentence and it's a very difficult construction because it, it's, it's kind of a personal name, but it also is kind of like a sentence and it can mean I am who I am. It can also mean I will be what I will be. In fact, it's very close to the construction of verse 12. I will be with you. Now, what is God telling Moses? He says, Moses, Moses asked him, what should I tell him as your name? How can I go down there and say, listen, I promise you the God of heaven and earth will meet our need. He will deliver us. And they say, well, how come we should believe in you? It's kind of like an ambassador from the United States who goes to Kuwait when they were under bondage and they were under a military assault. And, the, and our ambassador goes to the leaders of that nation in exile and he says, the president assures us that we're going to deliver you. We'll set you free. And they go, how do we know you're from the president? How do we know you're from Washington? What's the name? What's the name? How do you relate to him? And this ambassador says, well, the other day I was talking to George in the Oval Office and this is what he promised me. That changes the whole ballgame, doesn't it? And that's what's going on in this chapter, only we're not talking with just some president of a little country, of a big country. But from God's perspective, very minuscule. We're talking about the creator of heaven and earth. And Moses said, how am I supposed to identify myself? And God says, Moses, this is my personal name. I am. I am. Yahweh. You know what God is saying is? I am with you. I am, I'm the eternally existent one. But as Westerners, we can turn it into some great philosophical, abstract discussion about the eternal being. In fact, I've read hundreds and hundreds of pages about the ground of all being. If you read Martin Buber and you read Tillich, some of these great liberal theologians, I mean, you just spend pages and pages talking about being. And when you get all done, you don't know whether they know what being is. You're confident you don't know what being is. And the whole thing is rather abstract. And you also are very proud of yourself because most people can't even read a few pages of this stuff and you read hundreds of pages of it. God doesn't reveal himself like that. He's not just the abstract being. He's not just some great abstract idea. You know what he says to Moses? He says, Moses, when you go down to Egypt, you tell those people that I am with you in slavery. That's the first thing I want you to know. You see, in Hebrew, it means I am. That's why I had you camp on the phrase. God says, I will be with you, Moses. I will be with you. And all the way through the usage of Yahweh in the Old Testament, when you get to Hosea, God says to the people, because of my judgment, because you have turned away from me, because you've broken our relationship together, I am no longer, hey, yeah, I'm not with you anymore. I am not your I am anymore. I'm not going to be there for you. Because you didn't want me to be there, you walked away from me. And under the old covenant, under Sinai, it wasn't a covenant of grace, it was a covenant of mutual responsibility. And so God says, I'm not I am anymore for you. I am not with you anymore. Therefore, the Assyrians will come down and they'll destroy you. I am not Yahweh to you anymore. I'm not with you. So what does the phrase mean? It means I am. I'm the great eternally existent one, but I am the one who is personally with you. You know what else it means? It can also mean a future idea. I will be what I will be. I will bring about, I will cause, I will cause what I mean to cause. 
You know what it meant for an Israelite? Moses went down into Egypt. And they said, big deal, who are you? Man, the last time you were down here, you murdered a guy. You came and said you're going to set us free, and then you split. You've been gone for years. Man, life, you become an aged old man in the meantime, sitting out there in the wilderness. Why should we follow you? You're going to go in and talk to Pharaoh, let my people go? Why should we listen to you? And Moses said, because I met I am. And I am sent me. And God said, the personal name that we would know him by is, I am with you. And when Moses stuck his finger in Pharaoh's face, Moses said to Pharaoh, I am has told us to go and worship him. And I am is with us and we will worship. And the most powerful ruler of the day said, uh-uh, I'm the great king. And I don't care what mealy little God you have working with you. And the great I am began to shake the country of Egypt. Because he is the one who's eternally I am. And he's also the one who will cause what he means to cause. He will bring it about. If we were a bunch of Israelites before the coming of Christ. As I began to talk to you about the deliverance from Egypt. And about I am who delivered those people and drowned Pharaoh's horses in the sea. There would begin to be tears that formed. What does Yahweh mean to us this morning? What does the God that appeared to Moses mean to us? And what it means is God came to us 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said, when the Jews said, who are you? Who are you, Jesus? Who are you? You claim to be the Son of God. Who are you? And what did Jesus respond in the book of John? He said, I am. And the Jews picked up stones that were there and they began to stone him. And he went and departed from their midst. What was Jesus saying? You know what Jesus was saying? He was not just saying, I am the great eternally existent one, which he was. Because in the New Testament, all of this becomes focused. In the New Testament, all this talk of, I am with you. I am for you. I am the eternally present one. But not just an abstract idea, but a very personal God who's going to be there to deliver you from Egypt. In the New Testament, becomes the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so John's gospel begins with that very famous verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And at the culmination of the book, at the culmination of the book, when Doubting Thomas was finally in the right place at the right time, and Jesus appears to Doubting Thomas, and Doubting Thomas falls to his knees. What does he cry? You know what he cries? As a Hebrew, he cried, My Yahweh, my Yahweh and my El. You know what he was saying? He was saying, Jesus is the great Elohim. But I call him by the personal name. I am with you. And how did Jesus close his ministry to? He said, Lo, what? You never thought of that together before, did you? What did Jesus say? Lo, I am with you. You ever stop and think of how incredible it is? You know what that means? It means that as we wrestle, like a lot of you have visited in the hospital this week, and you go into those rooms and it's tough, really tough. It's hard to wrestle with very serious illness, cancers, and, and hurt. You know what Jesus says? Lo, I am I am with you. Yahweh is with you. 
and I will be with you because I'm El Olam, the God of forever. We have a hold of a faith. We have a hold of a relationship with a God who is worthy to have his name hallowed, made distinctive. And I pray that that name, the name of Yahweh, who becomes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, I am with you. I trust that that's the Lord, that's the Savior that you've come to. That's what it means to be born again. And what it means to grow in that faith is to learn how more and more to set apart his name as distinctive. As we move out into this week, move out into life this week, we begin with, Daddy, you're in heaven. Your son, your daughter wants to talk. Let me express my adoration and my praise for your name, your Elohim. You're the almighty God. You're El Shaddai, the God that's more secure than a mountain. You're El Elyon, the most high, exalted God. You're El Olam, the God that's going to live forever. You're El Roy, the God who sees me and knows about my need. You're El Bethel. You're the God that revealed himself in specific places in history, at specific times, most of all in the specific person and place of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But you're also the Lord and Master, Adonai. But much more importantly, I know you by your personal family name. And its name is, I am Yahweh. I am with you. I am for you.